Welcome to the Service Management Leadership Podcast with Jeffrey Tiefertiller. Hello, everyone. Jeffrey Tiefertiller back with another Service Management Leadership Podcast, but we're doing something special. This is a global ITAM, IT Asset Management Summit, and I'm pleased, very excited to have Pierce McDonald, Rory Canavan, Craig Garanta. Did I pronounce that right, Craig? It's close, Garenti. Garenti and Pam Fulmer. With the name like Tiefer Tiller, I misspell, I mispronounce everybody else's name. So I apologize if I did that to you as well, Roy. So let's go around the horn, starting with you, Pierce. Uh, yes. Who you are, your company, what you guys do. Thank you. Um, my name is Pierce McDonald, and I'm an IBM license expert and uh, have an independent license, ex I guess, license consultant for the last 10 years, uh, focusing for the last number of years in IBM. And uh, you'll probably find my online persona is License Hawk. So uh, if you're looking for uh, tips, tricks, or uh, notes, or just to drop me an email, uh, pop over to License Hawk. Thank you. Rory. Hello, everyone. My name is Rory Canavan. I'm the founder and owner of SAM Charter. And where we um, differentiate from other organizations in the SAM space is to help organizations with the process and framework that sits around the technologies that you deploy uh, to uh, resolve any SAM or ITAM woes that you feel you have in your organization. Craig. Everyone, I'm Craig Garanti. I'm the founder for Palisade Compliance. Uh, Palisade is an independent management consulting firm that helps companies with their Oracle licensing, contract, and compliance challenges. So audits and negotiations and all that. Been doing that for about nine years. And then I spent 16 years at Oracle before that. And I was their global vice president of contracts and business practices and audits. So 25 years in the Oracle ecosystem now. Pam. Hi, I'm uh, Pam Fulmer. I'm a founding partner of Tactical Law Group here in San Francisco. And um, our firm specializes in licensing disputes, uh, you know, breaches of contract and copyright related issues. And we handle um, a lot of software audit defense. Um, and we tangle with some of the most difficult ones out there, the oracles, the microfocus, the quests, et cetera. And um, I'm happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. Awesome group, isn't it everyone? So let's get started, let's jump right in. There's been some recent events and legal and all this sort of thing. If this was a year ago, I would have kicked it to Pierce and say about ILMT and Big Fix splitting off. But Pam, with uh, the Oracle Ramini Street, is there, there's been some legal wrangling going on, some decisions. Do you wanna get us started on that? Sure, happy to do it. So, you know, Oracle has been fighting for years with other maintenance and support providers. And they're willing to go to the mat in, in, in those cases. And, uh, and they've poured millions and millions of dollars into them. There are actually two litigations involving Rumini Street, um, both in Nevada, uh, federal district court. And recently the court ruled on, uh, granted a summary judgment motion and in part and denied in part. But in the grant of the summary judgment motion, um, uh, Oracle got some big wins. So how it's gonna actually all come down when they eventually go to trial. Um, I don't know, but you know, and we can talk about some of those as well. Um, but Oracle and, and you know, still continues to not have that many audit cases against its actual customers. So Oracle's willing to fight you know, against these maintenance providers. They're tangling again with HP, for example. But still, you know, the audit lawsuits are few and far between, and it just goes to show that Oracle is worried about going to court over audits because of this VMware issue and others. Um, and they're, you know, the whole audit issue is currently still being litigated in a securities class action lawsuit out here in federal court involving their audit bargain close tactics. And I'm happy to talk to folks about that as well, if that would be of interest. And uh, Oracle's got, that name has come up often during this COVID time, right? I don't want to get too far down the COVID trail. And I'm going to kick this to Craig, but there's this practice of audit aggressive finding uh, 
deficiencies and then pushing to cloud and things of that nature, those tactics, is that fair, correct? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the tactic of audit bargain, it used to be audit, audit bargain close, and now it's audit bargain cloud. Um, you know, <laughs> we've seen that the, the city of Denver uh, was a great example of that a couple of years ago. Um, and it doesn't even have to be that they find a non-compliance. It just needs, they need to get the client worried about non-compliance, right? We think there's a $40 million non-compliance thing. So give us $10 million and you'll be fine. But that tactic is nothing new, right? It's vendors do this all the time when they want customers to do something. So it used to be audit bargain by database, audit bargain by exit data, audit bargain by EBS. Now it's audit bargain cloud. So the tactic is absolutely not new and it's not unique to Oracle either. Right. And, and what's interesting, Craig, to, to your point is when, when Oracle comes out with its final audit report, it doesn't even quantify the amount okay, in the final report that the licensee owes. They just have the number of processors or number of licenses that they're short. And that is such a huge number. We call that the shock number. And that's to soften you up, the customer, because as you said, you know, that when, when they do the math, they figure out that's a $40 million number. But, you know, so it sounds like a real bargain when Oracle offers the $10 million settlement when in reality you may only have 500 grand worth of non-compliance. So pushing back is, is something that I know that you're very good at and it's very important. Hello, recent events, Pierce. Um, yeah, just to Pamela's point there, uh, at the, uh, pushing back is actually really important. Um, you do not want to be seen as an easy target, first of all, uh, because it will get around the market. But also, very often, just the resistance alone is already going to knock 20-30% off of the compliance gap. Because keep in mind that, ultimately, you, the customer does have the raw information under the hood. And um, they have the evidence. And it's so much of it is down to interpretation. And in particular, uh, there's a reason why very few of the big vendors want to go to court because if you were to scrutinize some of these contracts in the Oracle world, the famous white papers are for educational purposes only mm. is so laughable really. Um, in the IBM world, there's a serious question over whether they can have this uh, click uh, agreements or every time you renew your, soft, your SNS that you've suddenly signed up to the latest um, possible advantage terms you can do this without actually explicitly doing it. These are very contentious areas in the legal world and uh, the vendors don't want to go in there. So pushing back, challenging, and very often just uh, you don't, the vendors are not that much wiser with regard, with regard to the license position, the license rules, or even the interpretation of metrics than you are. They just talk a better game. And they come in heavy-handed, right? That's the other piece. And to, you can come in heavy-handed. Uh, probably one thing I would say also when it comes to the, uh, particularly audit for any vendors is very, but Oracle are particularly good at it, is the jumping over the project and going straight to the CFO. And uh, <laughs> really got to preempt that because I've, I've been involved in long extended audits and then to suddenly be settled because of what we call golf course settlements and where the senior managers went to the CFO, they had a conversation and a deal was done. And no one's talking about compliance to Craig's point about just, uh, they put these things here and uh, they just want to settle it. So um, right. something to keep in mind. Yeah, if you don't push back, they're gonna be back sooner and harder, <laughs> you know? So, you know, it's, that's really important uh, against all of these, these folks. And, you know, the point you just raised about IBM in terms of these click wrap agreements, I'm seeing the same thing with Quest. So Quest has early contracts that basically <clears throat> have a clause that say you can't amend it unless there's a writing signed by both parties and it's a perpetual license. But then now they're coming in and saying that all of these quick click wrap agreements that were sent out with the software maintenance and support renewals every year, are they controlling contracts? And you gotta push back on that because Quest every year change their contracts to make them more beneficial to Quest and to hurt their licensees. They're not your friends. This is the whole thing. They're not your friends. So let's talk trends and each of you all have very different specialties. And that's why I think this panel is awesome. Let's talk trends in your specialty 
uh, start with Rory. It, what trends are you seeing? So I think um, increasingly, um, particularly on LinkedIn as well, because I, I seem to spend far too much time on LinkedIn as it is, um, I'm seeing a lot more around robotic process automation. And that's of a particular interest to me because, of course, I, I focus on process. Um, I haven't yet any, seen anybody grasp the, the Sam Nettle and say, right, okay, here's an RPA, RPA solution for your processes around Sam or ITAM. Um, there, there's some tools that sort of hint at it, and I think ServiceNow is is probably leading with in respect of workflows. Um, Showwell are up there too, but um, there are there are other tools that I think could could step up and in, and sort of embrace it somewhat more. Um, but equally too, I think I think there's a definite use case for a lot of the the core I, um, RPA product sets, the likes of say Cofax, UiPath, all of those Blue Prism to step forward and say, here's our, um, uh, our RPA initiative around Samurai TAM. And we fit it around the SAM tools. We fit it around the inventory tools and we fit it around the, the contract and support tools. So they, they're like deadly nightshade then at that point, they're, they're sat in the middle of the IT estate actually making all of this integration seamless. Yeah, so they integrate downward or upward, whichever way you view it versus waiting for the tooling to come to them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good thought. Pierce? Um, I guess in, it's probably two parts, the specific, which is IBM, my area, and then there's just SAM in general. In the IBM space, look, it, it's all moved to the cloud. Um, the big push is uh, with regard to the dual licensing. So essentially that's a, a natural transition between I have perpetual license, I can keep them perpetual for a year, but then I lose it, it fades away essentially once you move into the cloud. Um, so that side of things. So, and also just the huge push in terms of, um, as everyone says, all audits are settled with a cloud deal. And uh, it, it's maybe not, some vendors are more a push it than others, but it's very much the trend. Um, also, what was interesting recently was just uh, all the discounting has been removed for a huge, about 5,000 products. Um, on renewals for on-prem, but of course, cloud remains untouched. So there's a there's a, many subtle pushes here to to basically move to the cloud. COVID, of course, uh, is very much changing the mindset. We've all known about you know cloud offerings and uh, Office 365 being a very good example of it. But now the the the, uh, the work from home culture, it's very much going to be uh, cloud first. It's going to be it was talked about, now it will be the mantra. The general observation, of course, uh, for me is probably around the tool vendors actually. Um, there's a whole new generation of cloud only um, optimization tools and management tools coming up, um, any amount of them. Uh, I do believe that's by the way, it's tied into RPA because cloud is ideal for uh, automation because the variables are, are fewer. But, um, and then beyond that though, look, that's not, you can't miss out service now is coming like a juggernaut into the industry um it's in the service management is dominated but it is absolutely the rate of development of their innovation is, is striking and it's striking in comparison to the lack of innovation from the other vendors now i will say uh, bmc and flexera are catching up fast they're acquiring their way basically um, and they're trying to create a platform standard, as in they're the ones going out buying service management uh, extensions or procurement extensions or e-license uh, procurement uh, add-ons. So there are some uh, observations from my own side. So Pierce brings up something that I've seen, and I'm, you guys probably saw it too, is where BMC was stagnant in their, in their innovation and ServiceNow ran right by them, and now they're playing catch-up because they had this on-prem uh, stronghold and now they're trying to catch up stats-wise and it's their customers are struggling to know what to do in that regard. Is that fair, Pierce? It is indeed. And I've been involved in a number of like tool procurement uh, consulting on that. And two years ago, I'll be honest, BMC and Flexera were looking a little static. They are not now. They have lifted their game, but it's because they've been absolutely pushed. And it's the rate of innovation. That's what's quite striking about service now. It's integrated, certainly, but clearly they have the pockets to uh, to develop and innovate. And they have very much targeted ITOM and SAM Pro as their leads in the uh, SAM space. Yes. 
Uh, Pam, Trent? Well, what I what I'm seeing is I'm starting to see more licensees going into court for declaratory relief. And I think you're going to see that trend continue because as we go to the cloud, you know, now if, um, if a vendor sends out a license termination notice, you know, if you have perpetual licenses, you can still keep running, even though you run to court, you know, and file your motion and try to get your preliminary injunction. Um, with cloud, they can just flip a switch and turn you off. So that means there's going to be there's going to be a lot more leverage on the um, the software publisher side that people are going to have to contend with, and I think you're going to see more lawsuits because and more preliminary injunction motions because people are not going to be able to have that critical you know cloud turned off for very long, and so if these software publishers get tough and threaten termination notices and then flip off the switch, they're going to get embroiled in a lot more litigation. That is something to think about. Craig, what trends are you seeing? Well, if we focus on cloud for a second, there is a desire by companies to sort of have the freedom to do what they want to do that is best for their business. Uh, and what we're seeing is multi-cloud environments, hybrid cloud environments, some stuff on-prem, some stuff in cloud. Uh, and, and clients do not want to be locked in to one vendor. Um, so, you know, in the Oracle space, you know, they want to run Oracle on AWS, they want to run it on Google Cloud, they want to run it on Azure, they want to run it on IBM. We don't see many customers who want to run Oracle on Oracle just because of the, the vendor lock-in. Um, and there's this conflict now because, you know, the support business for on-prem is really profitable for Oracle. It's the last time they, they provided numbers that you could uh, decipher for support. It was $20 billion a year, 95% margin, right? So $19.5 billion of profit. Um, their, their cloud is only, you know, 60, only 60%. So every time the, these clients, especially with COVID, they want to save money, save money, save money. They want to lower their Oracle costs. And Oracle will keep coming back and saying, hey, yeah, I know you're spending $5 million a year on support. We'll get it down to $2 million a year. Just give us $10 million a year for cloud. And the customer's like, well, now I'm spending 12 with you. So there's just this conflict in the industry where clients want to spend less and have freedom. And particularly Oracle obviously wants them to spend more and lock them into Oracle. So um, it's sort of the last bastion for freedom here is, you know, once you, if you have everything on Oracle, like Pam said, it is so much easier for that vendor to flip the switch and turn you off and audit you and find you out of compliance and, and do all those things that it's really hard for them to do now. So, we're, and we're in the early stages of that battle still. Leverage, 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 right? All right, so this great conversation so far, just keep the, keeping the ball rolling. To me, software license is striking the balance between paying for what you're using and using for what you're paying for, right? Because if it's like anything else, if you're over-licensed, you're paying too much. If you're under-licensed, you're subject to audit and paying way too much. How do you advise clients, this open for anyone to jump in, but how do you advise people to strike that balance? because they are gonna have some growth in their usage, you know, that they may or may not know about when they sign their deals, yet they don't wanna leave money on the table or leave themselves open to this risk. Anybody? From my point of view um, on this question, I, I tell my clients, you guys should, um, for, first of all, when I do audits, I actually retain technical experts to, to help me advise my clients on the legal issues. Um, and so, you know, even um, if I'm not going to continue to be involved in something because an audit is done, I say you really need to hire some of these technical experts because you think you may understand the licensing, but you don't. And so you need them to come in, you need them to help out and do an audit with you and to really help you optimize this. Um, and so I think being penny wise and pound foolish is a mistake for companies. They need to hire you, technical experts to help them out. I'd uh, very much, uh, I think that the, uh, the three or the three of the forms in this call would support that, uh, Pamela. From my perspective, and again, I take a, I suppose, a vendor specific and then general, um, with regard to IBM, there are actually only a couple of things you need to really watch closely. And that very much applies for any of the vendors I find. In my world, it's ILMT. You need to just watch everything, 
that's running in a virtualized environment and the tool that IBM accept as the uh, as, as the definitive answer of, of consumption. Now, that's not to say that uh, rules will get be bent, over deployments will occur, but at least if you're watching and measuring it and at least seeing it coming at you and having the expertise, and you will need to bring in expertise wherever you get it from to analyze it because you will not, your team in-house will not be able to keep up with the latest trends, be it Oracle, Microsoft, IBM, or whichever vendor it is. But very often there's certain core metrics, certain basic things you have to watch. Um, I'm sure Craig will comment regarding uh, Oracle on a virtualized environment in a moment. But in my world, it's all about ILMT. It's processor-based licensing, PVU, and very much keeping on top of that and bringing in expertise. Your in-house team are not going to be able to keep up with the trends. They're not going to be on top of it. And these are multi-million dollar assets you're talking about here. It takes a trivial uh, just a very simple deployment in a virtualized world, you literally drag and drop an icon and you can provision an entire stack that's a million dollar liability to your company. So monitoring and having expertise to advise you on it. Pierce and I were talking offline about um, somebody setting up mirroring or cloning an environment. And now you have this expansion, you know, somebody's doing it, trying to, trying to be technical technically savvy and now they've opened this Pandora's box wide open. Uh, yeah. Rory or Craig? The compliance is, is just a, it's such a moving target. And, you know, sometimes there's no right answer. You know, if you, you think about it, um, there are some clients, depending on your view and, and sort of how you're looking at the environment, they can be in compliance and out of compliance at the same time. You know, think virtualization, right? If you read the contract, you could argue that they're in compliance. If you look at some policy document that's online that's specifically not in your contract, you might say they're out of compliance. So this uh, idea of, you know, perfect compliance, it, it's something that has to be managed. It has to be monitored. And every customer is going to make their own decision on sort of their risk profile, their ability um, you know, to fight the vendor or to, to want to sort of buy more licenses. Um, at least in the Oracle space, it, it's just not black and white. It's a big area of gray that we have to walk our clients through. And contracts are gray. There's purposefully people, all right, Pam, I don't mean to step in your area of expertise, so correct me, but these contracts are purposefully vague. They are purposefully not prescriptive because then you would know how to be compliant. Does that seem fair? I think that that is true, but on the Oracle contract, I feel that it's not ambiguous at all. I mean, the, the metric is installed and or running. That's been the metric since you know 2000. That's the language of the contract. And that has a very technical meaning. And Oracle, by pointing to non-binding policy documents that you know the integration clause closes out, um, you shouldn't fall for that. And we see it all the time. Our clients do not pay on VMware, okay? They just don't. Um, it's not, in our view, part of the contract. The contract is not ambiguous to us. And uh, installed and or running has a simple meaning. And the position that Oracle takes, um, we don't think a court would actually, um, you know, put their stamp of approval on that. Um, and that's why we think Oracle is also nervous about that and why you're not seeing lawsuits that, that have any legs um, that involve any of these issues. I mean, I represented Cogent Communications um, in a, an audit related case. We resolved that with like within three and a half months. The Mars case was only, I think, two and a half months. Um, there was a recent case filed by Oracle. Um, I have the name here, which I'll find. That settled in like a month and a half. I mean, Oracle just doesn't want these audit cases out, especially while the Sunrise Firefighters case is going on. That's the big securities class action. And so any, you know, any threat that this might get out there to a public filing is something I believe they're extremely worried about. They don't want any precedent that's bad for stuff. All right. So much money on this. Okay, you know, a lot of people pay this. Okay, a lot of people pay it. They get scared. They hear that Oracle has a, a big reputation from all these 
remedy license, you know, lawsuits and the HP lawsuits and this, you know, and so they're worried about that and they buckle. And, you know, what I try to do is prop them up and, you know, say, I don't think you're going to get sued about this because I don't think this is a good position. If they are non-compliant in some areas, you know, then they probably need to remediate that. But VMware is not one of those areas in our view. And if I could just jump in there, you know, the, the Mars case, I love the Mars case. So, so we actually represented Mars through that whole thing, not from a legal perspective, but from a sort of licensing expert perspective. And, and if you follow the court filings, Mars actually filed against Oracle and it was quickly withdrawn, right? So, you, you know, we can't talk about anything after that, but Mars is still in business um, and still a client of ours. So, um, I, you know, none of these vendors want these practices um, sort of adjudicated, right? Because there's so much money that's out there. And it is right now, the way it is, it's just so profitable for them. So why, why risk it? Right. Yeah. And, and the Mars case, as you mentioned, I was at the law, the law firm that filed that was Aaron Fox out of the, the San Francisco and DC offices. And I was at that firm at the time. Um, and, you know, looking at that, the filing and all the documents. I mean, that is Oracle's biggest nightmare because all of those documents, all the communications between Oracle legal department attorney, Chad Russell and, and Mars is out there. And that's where they make the bogus VMware argument for everybody to see. And I think from what I've seen is that, you know, I, it's my opinion that, you know, Oracle legal is supposed to use termination notices or threats of termination, breach notices to try to, you know, get some leverage, get the clients to, you know, settle. But they never intended that to go all the way. That was a nightmare for Oracle when that lawsuit got filed, in my opinion. Pride cometh before the fall, huh? <laughs> all right. So move on to the next question. And so we, each of us looks at this from a different angle. And that's why I think this is awesome. But I see uh, software asset management as a business problem, not a tool problem. There are a lot, we talk about tooling, there are a lot that see it as a tool issue. And Rory has an experience in the process side, business side. Why do you think people see this as tooling first and how would you convince them, Rory? So I think, I think it comes off the tail end of having been the other end of one of those audits. There is a, a knee-jerk reaction to, um, we've got to do something about, about Sam or ITAM. We've got to do something. And very rarely does an organization hold a mirror up to itself and say, the problem is within. It's what we do. Sam, Sam and ITAM are participation sports. They are not, um, it's not a case of, um, I will get fit because I own, own a new pair of trainers. It's, it's it's you putting the miles in and putting the steps in that are going to get you fit. So the the obvious leap then is well we've got to apply technology to the situation. So we're dealing with a technical company. We'll apply more technology. And what's paid for my house and my car and my very nice lifestyle has been those organisations that have invested in Sam Suites um, have found six months later that they're not getting the results that they want. Uh, and then of the mind, well, because we're not getting the results that we want, um, we might have to ship that out and get another SAM suite in place that will give us the results that we want. And we have to sort of drag people back from the fire potentially and say, no, it's not, it's not the SAM suite, it's you. Um, it's what you're doing. It's, it's not what the tool is telling you. So, um, and I've, I've got a particular use case on my website where I, I did a very short piece of work for a particular client. And the, the, the person concerned who got me in within 15 months got two promotions out of it and a heap more responsibility. So that, that is the best use case I ever had. It was, it was the personal and professional satisfaction um, out of doing the job right that saw them, you know, hop, skip and jump up up the corporate ladder as a result of it. So, and that was, that was really heartwarming off the back of it. So, yeah. So two use cases I always use, and these are ones I've seen personal. So I, I tell this and you all will make chuckle because you've seen similar or you can't believe this happened. But at a previous job, a large consulting firm, I was on their in-house and had the ITM group and they had a specific Adobe title and it showed green. 
hey, we're licensed, we're in compliance. We have 16 of these. They were using zero. So if, yes, they were compliant, but it wasn't solving their business problem of spending. And so kind of to your point, right, Rory? Like, why are we spending money on this? The other is there's a large U.S. insurance company. I'm not going to say which, but they have a five, six person group that saves them seven to 10 million every year just by their process of making sure they're licensed well, they're protected from audits. They have goals that they this company uses to offset the cost of, you know, the increases in labor and, and software raises, you know, the escalations every year. This one software asset management group offsets all those. It's pretty interesting. And so to me, that's why I'm always passionate about software asset management, IT asset management, because it's a business problem to be solved. Uh, so, Jeff, I, I appreciate that I'm, I'm encroaching on others' time, so my apologies, but just to sort of flip against the previous question too, how do, how do we actually assess value? Businesses increasingly now, particularly I think because of the way service management presents IT to the business, they don't care about Microsoft or Oracle or IBM. They care about messaging or ERP or CRM. That's, it's, it's the service function that they do care about. Now, if that service technology stack is made up of, of software from multiple vendors, trying, trying to actually get that view or perspective for TCO and ROI that's that's what senior management want to see. Rarely, in a cold day in hell, do they actually proactively say, "Where's my compliance position with Microsoft or Oracle?" You know, they they wait for the audit letter to come in before that happens. So, I think that's another way to sort of strike a view of value through the IT estate. And and again, we've we've got sort of support around that activity on our on our white papers page as well. So. Um, I, I also think that Sam, um, it used to be a, very much used as a focus of it's accounting exercise. We've got X amount of laptops, PCs. Can we? And it, this is because of its hardware background, really, where the value was actually the physical device. But that's completely shifted now to the point where the physical device is quite literally a commodity. It's the phone in your hand, or it's just the whatever I use. It's the the glass pane I access. The assets are behind the scenes or software. But more importantly, is I think it's it's been treated for too long as a technical exercise. And I know probably all of us in this uh, call here and many in the audience are coming from a technical background, but it's, I believe it is very much a financial thing. It is an asset management. And I mean, when I talk about assets, not physical assets anymore, it's financial assets. It's trying to get the maximum value out of an investment I have made with a vendor. And it just so happens to be that that, that is software, but what version edition? That just is a, is a measure of consumption. It, it, how it's used as a technical exercise, how we measure and manage it is a financial one. Uh, the move to the cloud is very much going to bring that into focus because it's now an OPEX where you're literally looking at it. <clears throat> a bill comes in every month and someone has to say, what did I just buy? Is this bill on budget? And the, the mindset and the, and the conversations need to shift to that of financial control. And uh, which is actually evident from many of the cloud asset management now is being part of the procurement function and, uh, and is part of finance. And that's the mindset we need to be adopting here. These, just, these are assets that just happen to be software. We need to manage the contract, we need to manage the value, and we need to manage the terms and conditions around it. The counting bit is, is it's the bookkeeping. The real um, action is going to be in the managing and getting that value out of it. And to your own point, I love that example of where the, the team were basically targeted with a, how do we reduce by X million each year? That's a fantastic way of viewing something. It's not about counting anymore. It's about how do we maximize value? That's a mindset. Um, just like other teams are targeted to reduce costs or targeted to maximize value. It's a mindset. Craig, Pam, are you guys okay? Have anything on this? Not, not from me. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'm going to bring out my Oracle hat now. So again, I spent many years there, and when we would talk to customers about sort of how they run their businesses, um, we would talk about this process of automation, and automation was the last piece. So it's simplify, standardize, centralize, automate. In that order, right? So simplify, standardize, centralize, automate. Because what we were seeing at Oracle was customers would go right to 
to automate, right? And they wanted to automate a bad process or a very uh, decentralized process that was unautomatable, right? So, so you want to go through that process. I think it's human nature. We just want a tool. We want to hit the easy button. Um, and if I focus on the Oracle piece, uh, there's no tool that will tell you if you're really in compliance with Oracle. And I say that because if there was a tool, Oracle would use it to audit, right? So there's a tool has a component of that process. And I love it when we go into a client and they have a tool, it's better than if they don't, but is it gonna give them the final answer of are you in compliance? You know, that's where I think customers, because the, those vendors, those software vendors make a lot of promises about sort of how their, their software works. And the reality is just a little bit different. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's that old analogy, isn't it? Would you, would you entrust a thermometer to cure you of your cold? <laughs> no. no. I like that. I do like that. That's new to me. I never heard that one before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hear new ones all the time on this. Uh, a few episodes back on the podcast, we had a gentleman who's a deputy CIO for the U.S. Army, and he's based not in the U.S., and he said many times IT is like a self-licking ice cream cone. And I had never heard that one either. And so uh, anyway, I, I enjoy hearing the differences. So let's let's talk audits for a couple questions as we end this episode. And this is for all of you, but how? what is the benefit of bringing in expertise, whether it's legal or vendor-specific expertise, when you're, you get this audit notice, right? Oracle, IBM... Microsoft, they come and they say, we want to audit you. Why should they bring in expertise? I mean, what I see all the time is that, you know, and I, I can't tell you how many times I'm told that the technical team, you know, by the law department at a company, the technical team really knows what they're doing here and, and they don't. Right. Um, and that's why they do need technical help to you know, understand these very complex rules. It's not because they're not good and they are, but things are changing. And what, what we see a lot, we see so many of these. So we know like where we can press and you know, you guys do too, okay? Because you've seen them, you've seen what happens with negotiations and we can bring that to bear. And then, you know, like I said, I always have a technical expert. So I hire technical consultants to assist me. And, uh, and, and basically what I do is if I'm, if I'm brought in, you know, while the audit is ongoing, I can help actually structure the correspondence in a way to make the best record for the licensee, um, rather than, you know, coming in when the client gets the shock number and the organization is really upset and IT heads might roll, you know, um, and, and so we've been able to, to, to guide folks, I think, to create the best record, to put them in the best position to have leverage to resolve the audit. The earlier, the better is what I heard you say, Pam. Is that fair? Uh, that is absolutely true because, you know, it's better to actually shape what's going on than to just be handed this at the end. And then, you know, and, and the other thing, and I don't want to take up too much of, of everybody's time here, but you know, keep old audit correspondence too. That's really important because, you know, someone from Oracle or Microfocus or whatever in a past audit may have told you that you could do something. And although they'll deny that you can rely on that, you know, you, you probably can. They probably stopped, which is this legal concept from changing that position. So keep the correspondence, keep great records, use it against them. Um. My view on this is pretty simple. The professionals, professionals here are doing it every day of the week. Our full-time job is defending audits, preparing customers either in terms of true-ups, uh, license baselines, or ELAs or um, <clears throat> EA renewals. We live it in the same way that the, whatever business our client is in, they are experts in it. So when you have a crisis, and I can tell you an audit is a very interesting crisis to have. It's high value, it's high risk, it's high visibility, because I can tell the CFO has received that letter, so he knows all about it. You want to bring in the experts for that short period of time that maximizes your defense and the people who are doing it as their daily job. Your team in-house might be very experienced, very knowledgeable, very capable, 
but they are not doing it every day. We are. And at the end of it, you'll say goodbye to us. You'll thank us for our work, pat us on the head, and uh, hopefully pay our bill and our bonus. And um, But we're gone. On to the next one. Like everyone here, like I do on anything up to 30 uh, major projects a year in the space. Quite literally, everyone here, I'd say we've done hundreds of audit defenses. Your team will do maybe one every three years and chances are it won't be the same team. So that's why you need to bring in the professionals. Just like when I go to court, um, I go get my alert. I don't go reading up the books and hoping for the best that I can defend myself. Or if my car breaks down, I'm not much of a mechanic. I bring it to the guy who knows how to fix cars and who spends his days doing it. When it's an audit, you come and you get the professionals for that period of time. And you mentioned the car example. The one I always think of is I drive a Volvo. And people in the U.S., uh, car mechanics, they don't like Volvos. And so you have to go to these specialized ones that have the right tools. And uh, that's the other, you know, just the thought process, how things work. Uh, Craig or Rory? So uh, I think to, to hark back to the previous points that were raised, um, the reason you'd engage an expert is um, rather like Pam said, you will, you will have people who will technically tinker as well. And one thing that we haven't perhaps touched on here is, is that concept of indirect licensing. So whilst um, various aspects of, of integrating um, different software from, from different um, software houses, um, is technically achievable. The license doesn't necessarily support it, or if it does, you have to sort of dig deep and, and pay for it. And the classic case in point more recently over here was um, uh, was Diageo, the manufacturers of Guinness. They they took their SAP ERP system and hooked it up to their um, CRM. And um, SAP absolutely wiped the floor with them in the courts. I think they took them for the tune of sort of 63 million UK. Um, and, and that empowered SAP. They looked west. They looked west and looked to America, and they, they had another killing over there as well. So uh, um, that's, that's why. That's why you engage with experts, because what you want to make sure is that there is a lessons learned as well. You don't, don't repeat the mistakes that might have put you in potentially hot water in the first place. And even with you all and your expertise, I, I want to, since my skill set is similar to Rory's, not, not experts like Pam Craig and Pierce, I will say, having even Rory that has a broader thought and here's how we need to structure it, there is value. And because the companies I've been in, they don't know what to do with an audit. They don't even know how to look at their contracts and how, to, how, to, how this should look against what our entitlements versus usage are. Is that fair, Rory? Um, yeah, yeah. Always, 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 always try and shrink the scope or get rid or, or, or de-risk. So it could be that, you know, that letter comes through, it does come to the CFO, but it's couched in such a way that it's actually more a fishing expedition than it is a formal call against the audit terms and conditions of the, of the contract. You know, straight to the bin with those things. You know, don't... Now, admittedly, you, you may get an expert in to formally read that for you and, and give you that, that confirmation, but think of the world of pain you've saved, you know, for that one day's engagement compared to the time you would absolutely waste thinking, oh, we've got to get the inventory, oh, we've got to get the entitlement, we've got to, you know, jump through hoops. So, yeah. Craig. Well, you know, in, in, and again, we are just focused on Oracle, so I'd love to hear what other folks think about this, but at least with Oracle, if you get the audit letter, Oracle thinks you're out of compliance, right? It's not an accident. It's not a congratulations, you were randomly chosen. Um, so, you know, if you want to avoid an Oracle audit, make sure Oracle knows you're in compliance. So I, I think that's sort of, you know, my biggest thing that I tell customers is something happened along your journey with Oracle where they think now there's money to be had and, and, and they want to get it from you. So um, that's, that's sort of my thinking is, and, and very few, um, Oracle uh, audit um, customers, if we want to call that, you know, from, you know, people who are being audited by Oracle come out completely clean, right? Oracle says, um, you know, we found nothing, right? So again, they might say you owe us nothing because we're going to forgive your sins here. But, um, you know, it's sort of a guilty until proven innocent thing. And uh, it's really perilous for, for clients, you know, a mistake could cost you millions. 
Yeah, and especially the way that Oracle puts little traps and triggers in their software. I mean, they don't have license keys, so people can inadvertently trigger something, and then it's a it's a I gotcha type situation. Um, but yeah, it uh, what Craig said is definitely definitely true. And um, but you got to push back, and and also, and we can talk about this as well in the next segment. Don't be afraid to go to the Oracle legal department or the legal department at these software publishers, because oftentimes they're the ones that can get the thing resolved because they can, they advise their business that the business has risk and they should, they should give. The salespeople tend to be really hardcore. They're trying to maximize the money. So sometimes going into legal actually will save you money and get the audit resolved sooner. So last question for this uh, week's episode, what guidance would you give some company, some leader who says, you know, I don't really want to be audited. How do I prepare? How do I stay prepared for that? I mean, first of all, they should pull all their contracts and entitlements together. And I can't tell you how many times I get retained and they don't have that. Um, and if you don't have it, don't ask for it because that'll trigger an audit. <laughs> but, you know, um, put some type of process in place where you're basically every time you enter into a new maintenance agreement or a new license, you know, you're filing that away in a central place and tracking it. Um, I would say uh, you are always going to be out of compliance most large organizations just can't help it. It's as uh, Pamela mentioned, it's too easy to over deploy. So with that in mind, manage for that. And what I would say is for your top vendors or your high risk vendors, a baseline every year and bring in the professionals who are going to be up to date on it and to understand that risk. And you may find you're up or you're, you're over or you're under, you can decide what to do with it, but at least you have the information. That'll be certainly, and a process of governance, and Rory can comment better on this, um, where not only is this, you are certain it's getting done, but that somebody is checking that it's getting done. That it's not just, ah, oh, yeah, IT have got that, and some sort of an assumption. No, it's not done. My experience has been whenever we're called in, assumptions were made, and in a world where literally one processor can cost you $100,000 or up to a quarter of a million, of something going, being mistake being made, you do not wish to do that. So measure it consistently, have a process around it and have the governance to check that it is being done would be my recommendation. Roy, Craig? Um, yeah, to, to echo Pierce's points there, prevention is better than cure. I would, I would stamp down on shadow IT um, I know there's a, there's a feeling within service management actually that shadow IT is not that bad a thing. Oh yes, it is. Um, uh, I would also um, not allow people to buy software on their corporate credit cards either. Just top tip. Um, try and, uh, uh, Craig, Craig had that great four-step process. You know, centralize, I think, was one of the expressions that he used wherever possible. Do, because that gives you the control um, to, to doff my cap in the direction of Steve Mullins, um, ex-training ex manager at Flexera. You can't manage what you don't measure. And if you can centralize the data, you stand a better chance of, of enforcing some degree of measurement then. Craig, you tie your- You know, it, it's really hard with Oracle because customers are in such different places with that vendor. Um, we've found 78% of our clients don't have their contracts, right? So you're sort of starting off with a position of, of not having your agreements. So I think I would put people on a fact gathering exercise, you know, see if you can find those contracts, see if you have information on what you're using, you know, see, you know, understand where your risks are, your big risks, and then, and then go alleviate those. Uh, unfortunately, you know, our business is sort of twofold. We have the firefighter business and then the fire marshal business, right? And I love the fire marshal business because we really help customers, um, but that's boring and customers don't want to spend money on it. But the firefighter business is when the audit's happening and they have the $12 million non-compliance. So you sort of have to figure out where you are um, in that model. Uh, and you, know, you just have to have expertise, whether it's in-house expertise 
um, or you know, vendor-specific external expertise, whether it's legal or technical or business, um, you are overmatched from the vendor's perspective. I think we all said it. You know, we do this hundreds of times a year or, or in our lives, and you might do it once or twice. So you're, you're really, the system's rigged against you. So you just have to understand that uh, when you're dealing uh, with these vendors. That is a great way to end this episode. I thank you all. Audience, come back next week and you can hear the next episode of this. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. We'll be back with Jeffrey's closing thoughts. Hello everyone, this is Jeffrey. I'm back with closing thoughts. I want to thank Rory and Pierce and Pam and Craig for their insight, their knowledge, such a wealth of experience. Many great points in this first episode. Uh, stay tuned for the next one next week. But some of the things we covered were trends in the IT asset management community, trends in the industry, some of the recent legal wranglings. Oh, isn't that interesting to hear about uh, some of the legal cases? Also about software licensing and how to prepare for an audit. Those are great topics and we could have gone on and on and on. And so it was a brief but very uh, packed conversation. One thing that Rory said that really struck home with me and uh, I give him all the credit on this thought is how he was telling a story of how one of his clients put in a SAM tool, a software asset management tool, and it didn't deliver the, the expected results. So they wanted to get rid of that one and put in a new one. And then they called him and they needed help with the process. They needed help with all the non-tool pieces, the people, the process, all of that stuff, and then the tool supplements it without, the other way is, okay, let's let the tool do it all and you will always be disappointed. And that was the story that Rory gave us. And so we've seen that up close in service management leadership. And we want to encourage you, if you're having those kinds of issues, if you're just frustrated with your software asset management tool, your process, reach out to us Rory's in the UK. He'd be happy to help if you're in Europe and I don't want to speak for him. And so if you have IBM uh, issues with licensing, reach out to Pierce. Legal help, especially defending an audit or renewals, for, reach out to Pamela and Craig for Oracle. It's such a great conversation. I know you'll enjoy next week's episode, so stay tuned. And once again, thank you for being a part of service management leadership.